From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that studies shocking things. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Electric Fish. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Mike. So we're having a conversation today. Yes. But we're also talking about how fish have a conversation. Oh, yes, indeed. So I'm teaching an animal behavior class right now, and I especially like exposing students to modes of communication that are just completely unfamiliar to how humans are used to communicating with each other. And one such mode of communication is by using electrical signals. Hmm. I can't hardly even comprehend what it must feel like to be able to detect electrical signals, and yet there are whole groups of animals that are able to do this. And so one thread of research that I've been following for a while is in these electric fish. And so we're so happy to have Dr. Bruce Carlson, who's a professor of biology at Washington University in St. Louis and has done a lot of really fascinating work on electric fish. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I think a good place to start is just to tell our listeners what electrical fish are in general. There are strongly electric fish and weakly electric fish. And I don't know if that's a good starting point or not, but perhaps we could start there. Yeah. So I would say the average person, when they hear the word electric fish, immediately they think of what we call strongly electric fish. These Mm -hmm. are fish like the electric eel. And these are fish that generate hundreds of volts of electricity and they use these as a weapon. So they use them to stun prey to make them easy to capture or as a defensive weapon to protect themselves against predators. But actually, most electric fish are what we would call weakly electric fish, meaning that they generate much smaller voltage in the range of ones to tens of volts. And these are much too weak to serve as any kind of a weapon. Instead, they use them to communicate with each other. So just like we're using sound to communicate with each other right now, they use electricity to communicate with each other. They can generate these small amounts of electricity in the water surrounding them, and they have what we call electroreceptors sensory cells for detecting this electricity. So they can communicate with each other. They also use it to actively sense their environment in what's called active electrolocation, which is is similar to echolocation in Hmm. in bats and dolphins, where they use sound and the returning echoes to image their environment. These electric fish, they use electricity. It's not like a traveling wave like sound that radiates outward and then bounces back. Instead, it's just imagine just an electric field surrounding the fish. Mm -hmm. And as it moves through its environment, if there's objects in the water that have electrical properties that differ from the surrounding water that causes a distortion in the electric fields and they can sense those distortions. So they can use it to find their way around in the dark, to find prey and to determine things like the identity of objects, the shape of objects, the distance to objects. Mm -hmm. Hmm. All right. So you said these are weak electric fields, one to 10 volts or so. Yeah, roughly. And so just for for reference, like we could take a nine volt battery, the little square ones, and you can stick that on your tongue even. Yep. And it, it just tastes bad. A slight tingle. But if you yeah. put, touch your fingers to a nine volt battery, you don't feel anything. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I've never tried this, but I, I would bet if you were to take an electric fish that was big <laughs> enough and stick its tail on your tongue, you might get a little tingle just like you get from a nine volt battery. <laughs> All right. So okay. that's what we're doing this weekend. All right. Cool. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, so how far away do these electrical signals, how far away are they effective? Do the fish that are receiving them have to be fairly close by or can they be 
a few meters away? They do have to be pretty close by. So I mentioned that it's not a traveling wave the way sound is a traveling wave. So what that means is it just passively decays with distance with one over the cubed distance from the source. And now so you're talking Mike's language. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was assuming one over R squared. So yeah. okay. Yeah, it's <laughs> when, actually when even, said... uh, even worse than that. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> and so that means that its ability to use it to actively sense their environment is limited to a pretty close to the fish's body, less than a body length or so. Okay. And then to communicate with each other, it can go a bit farther, probably on the range of three to five body lengths, but still pretty limited. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the organ of sensation that detects these, because I feel like we've kind of dabbled our toes into that idea already. So how do those work? They are related to the hair cells in our ears that we use to detect mechanical vibrations that mediate hearing. Okay. So these are all part of what we would call the octavolateral system. And so this includes the hair cells that we and other vertebrates use to hear sounds. They include the lateral line receptors that fish species have that they use to sense water motion. Mm. And they include electroreceptors. Basically, electroreceptors are just like hair cells, but they've lost their ability to respond to mechanical movement, but they still maintain their electrical excitability. And so basically, they act like kind of like a small voltmeter. So Mm -hmm. just imagine you've got a voltmeter embedded in the fish's skin. And whenever there's a voltage difference between the interior of the fish and the outside of the fish, that causes current to flow across the membrane of these electroreceptors. And that electrical current, that is the currency of the nervous system. Our neurons communicate with electricity. And so it's actually the simplest transduction mechanism of any sensory modality. So Hmm. with hearing, our nervous system has to convert mechanical vibration into an electrical signal. With vision, our photoreceptors have to convert photons of light into an electrical signal. With olfaction and, and taste, we have to convert chemicals that bind to receptors into an electrical signal. With the electroreception, it's already in the currency of the nervous system. So it basically just stimulated by electrical current and it converts that into a signal in the sensory receptors and it sends that information to the brain. Interesting. You mentioned the uh, lateral line organ. And so this is that organ that runs down the side of the, the fish. So is that where most of these sensory neurons are located or are they located more dispersed or, or elsewhere in the body? Yeah, so it really depends on the group of fish and the particular species. As to where exactly they're found on the body. They tend to be concentrated on the head. In some species, they're also found on the back, on the belly, sometimes on the flank of the fish. It varies quite a bit. Do these sensory neurons, are are they considerably more widespread among the fish than is the ability to actually produce an electric field. In other words, this is kind of a sensory mechanism that was already in place evolutionarily prior to the independent origins of the ability to produce an electric current, or was it more of a hand-in-glove, they sort of evolved together kind of a situation? The receptors, in almost every case that we've seen where the electric organs for producing signals, these signals have evolved, the receptors were there first in almost every case. Mm -hmm. And actually, as best we can tell, electroreception was actually an ancestral vertebrate sense that was found in the earliest ancestors of vertebrates. Mm -hmm. And it's still found in many different vertebrate groups. So it's found in lampreys, the jawless fishes. It's found in all cartilaginous fishes. So sharks, skates, rays, ratfish. It's found in certain bony fish like sturgeon, paddlefish. It's still found in aquatic amphibians. And it's even found in some mammals. So the the duck-billed platypus is a really weird creature in many ways. It also is weird in having this electric sense. And there's some evidence that maybe even some dolphins might also have electroreceptors. This ability to sense electric fields. So it's it's a very useful sense. Animals can use this. So you think of sharks. They typically use it to find prey. They might be buried. It might be turbid water. 
but they find out where a prey is generally using things like sight and smell and sound, but they use it for that final strike to make that final attack on their prey. And other species use it for finding buried mates or for avoiding predation. So it's, it's a very useful sense in an aquatic or marine environment. People have probably seen like footage of hammerhead sharks sort of like moving along the surface of the mm-hmm. ground. And then all of a sudden they'll sort of strike and scoop up something from the muck. They're using their electrical sense then, right? Exactly. And so, so, so they're going to use something like sound or, or smell to know that there's food in the vicinity. Uh-huh. But it, when they know it's there, they're going to start scanning. And it's their electric sense that's going to give them that final pinpoint accuracy. So they're they're detecting an electrical current that's being generated in some way. But what, what exactly is it that's generating that electrical current? And is that related in any way to the organ itself that produces this electrical field? So what they're queuing in on is basically the bioelectricity that's produced by all living organisms. So if you think of a, of a neuron, so neurons in the nervous system, they have an electrical potential across their cell membrane. And the reason that they have an electrical potential is because the concentration of ions inside and outside the cell is different. So this separation of charges creates a small, basically, battery across the cell membrane. Well, that's true also for whole organisms in an aquatic or marine environment. The concentration of salts that's inside an animal's body is different from the concentration in the surrounding water. So that sets up a small voltage difference between inside and out. Mm -hmm. And at parts of the body that are exposed to the environment, you can get a small current. And also any kind of movements. So our muscles also work by electricity. Every time we move a muscle, you're getting an electrical current in those muscle fibers. And so a buried fish that's breathing, it's pumping its gills at a rate of about once per second. And so a hammerhead swimming along is going to pick up on that rhythmic oscillation Mm -hmm. of an electric field as the gills are opening and closing. That's going to create an alternating current that they can pick up on. Hmm. Hmm. All right. So you're saying that all of our cells, every living thing is creating electric fields and currents and so forth by oftentimes moving salts around and and things like that, which are, you know, if we just pick NACL, table salt, right? That Mm -hmm. That if you're flushing, if you're moving intentionally all the sodium to one side of you and and all the chlorine to one other side, then you've actually created a battery between those two sides. And you're saying all of our cells do that anyway. And that's how, you know, if you prick my finger, then that signal ultimately makes it to my brain by these types of electric signals. Yeah, that's all through spikes of electrical activity. Cool. One way to think about it is if you've ever had an EEG, electrodes placed on your scalp, or an EMG, electrodes placed on your muscles, Mm -hmm. or an EKG, electrodes placed around your heart, those are picking up. Up those electrical currents. So basically the sharks and, and other animals that have this, what we would call a passive electric sense, they're just sensing external electric fields in the environment. They're basically doing their own biological version of like an EMG. Mm-hmm. This is a concept that we talk about in our introductory biology class, where we're talking about things like resting potentials of neurons and things like that. And it blows some of the students' minds a little bit to think that when a cell is just sitting there not doing anything, it still has a lot of electric potential energy on the membrane. And that's just because, as you were suggesting, Mike, the movement of these dissolved positively charged ions and sodium and potassium being important ones. So then tell us a little bit about the organs involved in these fish that both produce the strongly electric and the weakly electric. How do you go about generating that much voltage so much so that you could 
paralyze somebody else? That's a really great question. And this is actually a question that actually Charles Darwin posed when he wrote The Origin of Species. One of his chapters in that book, he called Special Difficulties with the Theory. And he basically, in that chapter, he set out to be as good of a skeptic of his theory of evolution by natural selection as he could possibly be. So he basically tried to collect all the biological observations he could find that didn't seem to neatly fit with this theory. And actually, strongly electric fish were one of these mysteries that he talked about. And so what he saw as the problem is they knew at the time that our bodies worked with electricity. That's how we moved our muscles. But how do you get from a muscle that generates these feeble amounts of electricity that you can only detect with special equipment to an electric organ that generates seven, 800 volts of electricity? You know, his theory of natural selection basically says that to get to that endpoint, you have to go through gradual functional adaptive intermediates. You don't make a quantum leap from these feeble bits of electricity to suddenly generating hundreds of volts. You've mm -hmm. got to go get there gradually. And what use is an electric organ that's too weak to serve as any kind of a weapon? Mm -hmm. And so it was about a hundred years later when a German behavioral biologist named Hans Lisman basically discovered that weak electric organs are used for communication in active electrolocation. And so this could perfectly explain how you get from muscle that generates small amounts of electricity to contract to an organ that's lost its contractile ability, but still has its electrical capacity and the cells in these electric organs. So unlike our muscle cells, which are kind of, their timing is kind of sloppy. They don't all generate electrical spikes at the exact same time. And these electric organs, they set it up so that all the cells fire their small electrical spikes in synchrony at the exact same time mm. so that their small voltages add up to make a much larger voltage. You basically just add more cells to it. So mm. basically the electric eel, it's actually a member of a group of fishes called the gymnotiforms that are found throughout Central and South America. And they all generate weak electric pulses. The electric eel basically just exaggerated that and evolved to have many, many more of these cells in its electric organ. And so it packs a much bigger electrical punch, but it's the mm. same basic mechanism. It's just adding more batteries basically. Okay. Oh, so you're saying all of our cells put out of very weak voltage. Yeah, in the range um, of like tens of millivolts. Tens of millivolts. I, that's what I was going to ask you. And so then when we started today, you said the, the weakly electric are somewhere between one and 10 volts. So that's a matter of just getting a few hundred cells to kind of work in synchrony. Exactly. In order to create that. And then to ramp that up another factor of 100, then that's a bigger and bigger organ. But I mean, we're talking about however many cells. That sounds like a big number, but it, it's not crazy, I guess. And if you think of an electric eel, they get up to two, three meters in length. And if you look at a cross-section of their anatomy, somewhere around two-thirds to three-fourths of their body length is made up of electric organs. Hmm. Wow. So that's how they're able to pack such a huge punch. Does it look like muscle tissue? Like if you didn't know better, does it look like muscle tissue? or It's, it's very similar to muscle tissue. It's just lost the actin and myosin filaments that normally when the calcium currents come into muscle fibers, they cause the actin and myosin to cause a contraction. They've lost that. So they don't contract anymore, but they otherwise look very similar to muscle cells. Wow. It's just like electrical currents flowing through muscle cells. There's just no mechanical movement because they've lost the contractile machinery that their ancestral muscle cells had. Ah, that's so cool. And you can actually see this happening. It's not just happening through evolution. If you compare electric organ to muscle, if you study the development of electric organ, you can see them actually develop from muscle tissue and lose their contractile ability and become electric organ. Oh, so if you looked at an embryonic fish really early in its development, initially it looks like... It looks just like developing muscle. Huh, that's cool. You said actin and myosin, those are specific proteins within your muscle cells. And those are the things when you create an electric field that that's what contracts and causes yeah, your muscles basically, to they kind of, They're filaments that kind of pull against each other to cause, like if you imagine a muscle fiber as a tube, 
they cause that tube to shrink. Mm. Huh. And so if you get rid of those fibers, then you still have the electric field generation, but no actual contraction of stuff. Exactly. Mm. Okay. So, okay. So those are the strongly electric fish. And that's really fascinating that one of these strongly electric fish is related to a group that includes a bunch of weakly electric fish. Being strongly electric is being weakly electric only, <laughs> only more so, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, so, and in fact, the electric eel also, it does generate weak electric pulses as well. So it has three different electric organs, and one of them it uses just like weak electric fish use to actively electrolocate their environment and to communicate with other fish. Hmm. But it's then they turn on the other ones when they want to stun prey or defend themselves against predators. Okay. And so then you remarked on the size of the fish and the way you explained it suggests that in order to be a strongly electric fish, it helps to have a large body size to accommodate this large organ to generate this much voltage. And so do the weakly electric fish tend to be a little bit smaller? And what does their organ look like? And what's the, the diversity of the, the weakly electric fish organs? In general, I would say the weakly electric fish tend to be smaller than the electric eel. But that's not universally true. There are some very large weakly electric fish, but okay. their electric organs are certainly smaller. Mm. So the the weakly electric fish, or they're, they're creating this field around them, it seems like this technique that you're sort of describing of how you would create an electric field, it would be hard to sustain that. It's very energetically costly. So the best estimates that we have for how much of their daily energy budget goes into fueling their, their electric organ discharges, it's in the range of around 60 to 80%. Hmm. So it definitely comes with a huge energetic cost to be able to produce these electric fields because they're doing it constantly throughout hmm. their lives. But but so it's like little clicks. It varies. So okay. there's some species that we call pulse type fish. These are fish where they generate discrete pulse of electricity separated by longer intervals of silence, very similar to EKGs. If you or any of your listeners have ever seen an EKG, you know, you see this very discrete waveform associated with each heartbeat with some gap between each heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And that's what these pulse type fish are like. They're generating these pulses of electricity separated by longer periods of silence. Also, these fish that we call wave type fish, where basically the duration of a single pulse is the same as the interval between pulses. So it ends up producing basically a quasi sinusoidal continuous wave, mm. where if you hook their output to an audio monitor, to a speaker, instead of sounding like discrete clicks, it sounds like a pure tone. Hmm. Mm. Just kind of humming. Yep. And the frequency of that hum varies depending on the species, the sex, the age age, the reproductive status of the individual. Hmm. Yeah. So that actually is a good entree into talking a little bit more about the selective environment and the adaptive significance of this. So is there any sort of common theme in the sorts of environments that you find these sorts of fish in? Like, I mean, obviously they're aquatic, but do they tend to occur in murky water where other modes of communication are hard to do? Are they lake versus river or what is there is there any signal there or is it just sort of scattered in a diversity of different habitats you often find in textbooks that turbidity is used as an explanation for why these this ability evolved that these fish tend to live in turbid environments where vision isn't so useful and so they tend to evolve this electric sense. It's possible that that may have played a role in the early evolution of electric organs in different groups of fishes. But at least if you look among living fishes, you find plenty of electric fishes living in crystal clear water. Hmm. And you also find plenty of non-electric fishes living in very turbid water. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm not so convinced that that is the explanation for why these have evolved. More likely, I think, is all these fish tend to be nocturnal. And so I think what this did is it helped open up the nocturnal niche in in a very similar way to how echolocation opened up a nocturnal niche for bats and and a unique way of seeing their their environment and exploiting those niches. I think it may be something very similar in electric fishes that using electricity to communicate with each other and find their way around and find prey basically opened up a nocturnal niche where vision wouldn't be so useful that they could exploit. Huh. I like your comparison to the bats because in figuring out how to live at night, the bats like diversified into one of the most diverse groups of all the mammals. And so maybe this is sort of an analogy in these groups of fish. Are they a pretty diverse group? Yeah. So the Mormyrid fishes that we study in Africa, they are one of the most diverse groups of all bony fishes. So they're right up there with as being one of the top five families in terms of diversity. Hmm, That's cool. So what's some of the information content of these electrical signals that fish are, are sending to each other. Yeah, so they're actually able to communicate a lot of information to each other. They communicate information about their identity, who they are, and they also communicate information about their current behavioral state. So in the pulse type Mormyrid fishes that we study, I'll go back to the EKG analogy. Every time your heart beats, the waveform of your of your heartbeat looks exactly the same. You've got that the P wave and the QRS complex and then the T wave. And it looks like that every single time. And it's just like that for these fish. If you record the, the signal coming from an individual fish, every time it makes an electrical pulse, it has the exact same waveform. And that waveform communicates information about things like their species, their sex, whether they're reproductively active, their relative dominance. It even mm. possibly contains information about their individual identity. Mm. So it's kind of like the face of the fish or the voice of the fish, right? It's how they recognize who the, the, the signaling fish is. Yeah. So you're saying like, think of an EKG. So the, you've got the up spike and the down spike. So you're saying like, maybe how broad those spikes are or if there's a little gap in between the up and then a little pause and a down or yeah or so there's it... a lot of things that can vary so so like you're saying okay. it could be the total duration it could also be how many phases are in that waveform so sometimes there's just an up and a down but sometimes there's three phases a down and up and a down and some, hmm. some species it gets to even five phases in that single waveform and then the polarity can be different. So it could be up down, but it could also be down up. Mm-hmm. And then you can imagine things like the duration of each of those individual phases can vary. The slopes or the rise times and the fall times of those phases can vary. So you can actually get a great deal of variation. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about this, about an analogy, and I could close my eyes and probably identify a number of different people just by their voices. And there are all these different qualities that we're just so used to our ears picking up, like on the timbre of a person's voice. I mean, so is that a a decent analogy to try to understand like the, the quote, timbre of, or timbre, however you're supposed to say it? You mentioned that these different, even within the same species, there's the possibility that they might even be communicating, you know, I'm Bob and that's Steve over there and here's Greta, like those different subtle attributes that might even be invisible to us and our ability to detect them even they still might pick up on. Absolutely. We don't know for sure that they can determine individual identity, but we know that they can determine species. We know that they can determine male versus female during the breeding season. And, mm-hmm. and we know that they at least have the, the capacity to detect individual differences. 
We just don't know for sure if they're actually using that capacity. I could imagine like a a more fit fish versus one that is barely hanging on that they would give off slightly different signals. Yeah. During the non-breeding season in almost every species, the males and females have the same kind of signal, Hmm. but then they breed during the rainy season. And so when when it starts to rain, water levels go up, the, the electrical conductivity of the water goes down. Then in the males, the testosterone levels shoot up and testosterone acts directly on the electric organ to modify the properties of the cells to cause their electric signal to elongate. Hmm. And the biggest, healthiest, most dominant males have the the biggest elongation Hmm. and they seem to be the most attractive to females as well. Hmm. That's a cool question, Mike, because one of the things we talk about in animal behavior, and I'm sure this is in a lot of animal behavior classes, is this concept of honest communication and how it is that the expense involved with producing a signal ensures its honesty because the weaker individuals can't fake it because it's it's a hard thing to do. And so what Bruce just described, I think, dovetails with that theory very nicely that males are able to produce the most robust signal. And it looks like females are also cueing on that too. Yeah, that's a really great point because the longer your signal is, the more energy it's going to take to produce each pulse. And then also we were talking earlier about a lot of fish have these, what we call ampullary receptors, like the sharks and the skates and rays have the ampullary receptors that they don't have electric organs to communicate with each other to actively sense their environment, but they can pick up on external electric fields. Well, it turns out that the ampullary electroreceptors are most sensitive sensitive to low frequency information. And if you take your pulse of electricity and you elongate it, you're increasing the amount of energy you have in low frequencies. Mm -hmm. And so theoretically, the longer your pulse, the more detectable it's going to be by fish with ampullary electroreceptors. And there's actually been some work done that shows a large predatory species of catfish in Africa that these catfish have ampullary electroreceptors. And if you study their stomach contents during the rainy breeding season, the number of male mormyrids in their stomachs shoot way up. (laughs) So it's almost certain that that's another big cost of elongating your signal Hmm. is that not only are you spending more energy on it, you're also exposing yourself to a greater risk of predation. That's cool. So I was going to move on to talking about some of your recent work. And actually, could I say but, one more thing yes, about please. what they can communicate to each other? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, please. So, you know, I was using this EKG analogy and I said, you know, each pulse they produce moment to moment is the same waveform, but they can vary the rate at which they produce those pulses. So they can discharge at a very slow rate or at a very high rate, which again, just like our EKGs, if you're exercising, doing an intense workout, or you're nervous, or you're emotional from some other reason, your heart rate's going to go up. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're relaxed, very quiet, your heart rate goes down. So even though the waveform of each heartbeat is the same, the rate at which those beats come in varies. Mm. These fish can voluntarily vary the rate of their discharge and they use it, they generate different patterns to communicate contextual information. So things like aggressive signals, territorial signals, submissive signals, courtship signals, mating signals things like this. Well, right. So like every time I see my wife, my heart rate goes a little bit faster. And so that makes sense. Yeah. And by the way, I'm going to keep that in just just in case she ever listens to this episode then. (laughs) (laughs) And so and so you said, you know, like the way from these pulses is kind of like the timber of their voice that you use to identify them. The rate of the pulses is more like what they're actually saying. Hmm. Mm, Okay. I'm I'm an aggressive male. This is my territory bug off or Mm -hmm. I'm just passing through. I submit or I'm a male looking for a mate. I'm a female looking for a mate. Mm-hmm. They're, they're communicating this more contextual information that way. Hmm. Do the males establish territories that they defend from adjacent males? Is that how their mating system plays mm-hmm. out? So as far as we can tell, both males and females establish territories. Oh. And during the non-breeding season, they're most likely operating in a single 
kind of hierarchy where they've all got their territory that they, during the day, they hide out in their territory. And then at night when the sun goes down, they leave and they start foraging off of their territory. And then when the sun comes up, they go back to their territory. In the breeding season, as best we can tell, this still hasn't been studied too much, but it seems like the males will advertise from a territory at night and the females will be swimming along and, and checking out different males. Hmm. That sounds like another cost associated with advertising is uh, giving up foraging time. Absolutely. So how do you block out the signals that your own body is producing? How do you tell your nervous system not to pay attention to those so that you can pay attention to the incoming external stimuli and you don't get that all jumbled up in your nervous system so that you can interpret what's coming in as opposed to what you're producing. Yeah, so this is the fundamental problem faced by all animals in all sensory modalities, where if you're receiving sensory input, that could be input coming from the outside world, or it could be input coming as a result of your own actions. So I hear sound, I hear a human voice, whether it's coming from you speaking to me, or I hear myself speaking. Mm -hmm. And so it's critical for animals to be able to, to distinguish what is a result of my own actions versus what's actually coming from the outside world. And these fish, the Marmarid fish from Africa have been, I would say, the best organism for studying this problem. And the reason for that is that their motor output is so much simpler than typical motor output. So we think about when we're talking, that, that's a signal that's very complexly in time and space, or even just things as simple as walking or swimming. That involves interaction of multiple muscles that have firing at different times relative to each other. It's a pretty complex spatiotemporal pattern of output. But in these fish, it's just, it's a pulse, right? It's just pop, 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 pop. And so it's a much simpler problem for them, but they still have to solve it. And so for these two functions that we've been discussing, communication versus active left location, basically the signal that they're interested in versus the noise that can interfere with detection of that signal is flipped. So if they're communicating, then they want to listen to the signals of nearby fish but they want to ignore their own signal. But mm -hmm. if they're doing this active electrolocation to sense their environment, then they want to pay attention to their own signal and ignore the signals coming from other fish. Mm. Similar with echolocation, right? If you're a bat that's trying to echolocate around, you want to listen for your echoes. You don't want to hear the echoes coming from all your neighbors. Right. But if you're trying to communicate with other bats, you want to hear what the sounds they're producing. Hmm. And so it's referred to as reafferent versus ex-afferent input. So when we talk about afferents, that's referring to sensory input, any kind of sensory input to the nervous system. Reafferents would be sensory input resulting from your own actions. Ex-afferents would be sensory input coming from the outside world. And what is basically the fundamental mechanism for distinguishing between reafferents and ex-afferents is what we call a corollary discharge. And this is basically an internal copy of a motor command. Mm. So basically every time that your brain creates a command to produce a motor output, it sends a copy of that command to sensory regions of the brain, giving it a heads up saying, hey, guess what? I just produced this particular motor output and this is the sensory input you should be expecting to result from that. Mm. So that it can basically blank out that expected reafferent sensory input and let ex-afferent input go through. In our fish, they have two different sensory pathways for communication versus active electrolocation. In the communication pathway, this corollary discharge signal is inhibitory. So basically, every time they produce their own pulse, they simultaneously inhibit the first sensory region of the brain that receives the, the sensory input. So they basically briefly deafen themselves to their own signal. And so when you get into higher regions of the sensory pathway in the brain, it's only providing information about signals coming from other fish. It's completely deaf to its own signal. Yeah, so that, that keeps it from even getting to the part of the brain that interprets the signal. It, it doesn't even get there. So it's not that there's this interpretation center that's 
comparing the incoming input and say and throwing some away and and just paying attention to other it literally is not getting that deep into the brain is that what you're saying yep exactly it's just, it's just uh -huh. blocking responses to its own signal and uh -huh. in the active electrolocation sensory pathway it has the opposite effect. This corollary discharge actually excites the pathway so that basically the sensory neurons at the first stage of the brain will only respond if it's getting sensory input at the exact same time that it's producing its own signal. Mm. Otherwise, it won't respond. And so it's mm. only going to listen to its own signal. Okay. All right. So just to recap on that part then. So you're saying that the signals go to like two different parts of the brain. And in one case, the part of the brain is like, I'm only going to focus on things that are not me. So it, it will silence it the moment that it sends out a signal. And then the other part of the brain is amplifying the part that is coming from itself so that it can echo low cue. Exactly. Okay. I think that sounds like a, a great place to conclude. Yeah. So... Bruce, it was a pure pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for agreeing and joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thanks. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, or know someone interesting that we should talk to, email us at crisscrossingsci at gml.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>